In James chapter 5, let's begin reading, if we may, tonight uh, at verse number 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. I think that God has so blessed us with a body and with the five senses that we have. To be able to smell the beautiful, beautiful fragrances that this world has to offer, and some of the stinky ones. To be able to see the beauty and the handiwork. To be able to hear the voice of a child or someone singing. To be able to taste delicious food or beverage. To be able to touch and to feel things. But above all, to be able to talk. Of all the senses, I don't know which one I would want to do without, probably none of them. But what it is, an ability to be able to communicate through speech. And yet with our tongue, this hole underneath our nose, we can glorify God with it, or we can curse man and God with it. The power of speech is a beautiful thing, especially if it's used in order to bring glory to God. James had a lot to say in the entire epistle about the power of the tongue, about speech. And yet it's no different four times in the section I read tonight. Once again, he had something to say about speech. He talked about speech on a lesser level. Uh, here in verse 9, he talked about complaining. In verse 12, he talked about swearing. We can take the tongue and tear down, complain, and, and we can swear with it as well. But he also talked about the tongue and the power of speech uh, in an uplifting way. In verse number 10, he talked about the tongue. We can proclaim God's word. In verse 13, he said we can pray to God and we can praise God with this tongue as well. You remember what kind of language came out of your mouth before you became a Christian? I do. I'm grateful tonight that God took out a cursor and put in a praiser. And I hope that he's taken out a murmurer and put in a worshiper. Because that's what he can do by the power of the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is certainly a high and a holy privilege for we that are born again children of God. To think that as God's children, we can come before the throne of God and bring forth our petitions. Tell Him what's on our heart. Tell Him what's on our mind. Tell Him our deepest secret. Tell Him anything that we want to tell Him. For His ears are always open and He's always bowed toward the cry of the people. I said this morning, Lord, in my prayer time right here early, I said, God, I come to your feet this morning and I bring to you my very best of worship. I bring to you my very best of praise. I bring to you my very best in this room. But it's at those same feet that I receive the fact that I can give my burdens over to God. The things that have weighed me down. The things that keep me up at night. The things that break my heart. Are the things that drive me to my knees. I can go before the throne of God and cast my cares upon Him. Because He cares for me. And only do I bring my best to the feet of Jesus. No do I bring my burden to the feet of Jesus. But thank God I receive His best at the feet of Jesus. 
Not only, do I, not only am I able to communicate with him through speech, but thank God he's able to communicate with me through the written word, through the audible voice if he chooses to. But he's a God that speaks. Seven times in this section, James mentions prayer. We said through the whole study that maturity of the Christian is one of the things that James is after uh, within this epistle. And certainly men and women of mature status in the Lord, we're not people that will murmur and complain when problems come, but rather we're people that takes our needs to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer is certainly a mark of a true mature child of God. We also believe in this section tonight uh, that James talks about uh, four different things we need to look at uh, concerning how God answers prayer. First of all, in verse 13, note what he said here again. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. We talk about now we pray for the suffering. Notice, if you will, the word afflicted here means suffering in difficult circumstances. The phrase in trouble is also a good translation. Paul used the same Greek word uh, here in uh, 1 Timothy 2.9 when he made the comment about how he was suffering for the sake of the gospel. And the apostle Paul said uh, that wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. As we as God's people, as we go through life, we often endure difficulties. We often go through suffering, not because of any sins that we've done necessarily, and not because we've been chastened of the Lord necessarily. Life simply happens. Let me tell you something, friends. Life happens. It rains on the just. It rains on the unjust. We're not just under a rain cloud all the time and God's just trying to zap us all the time. No, life just happens, friends. Amen. And there's some things that it just, it's going to happen. God didn't instigate it, but God can control it. The devil didn't instigate it, but God can still control it. Life simply happens. What do we do when we find ourselves in trying circumstances? What do we do when we find ourselves serving? What do we do when we find ourselves in positions where we don't know what to do? Well, we don't do this. We don't murmur and complain because everybody else has it easier than we do. <laughs> and we don't murmur and complain and blame God for what's going on. We simply take life as it's given to us. We, we take life as it's dealt to us. Now, let me tell you, friends, sometimes this is easier said than done. Amen. Are you with me? I didn't say you all do this. I said we had to do this. We play the hand that was dealt to us. And in the midst of it, we say, God, I know you can deliver me from this suffering. I know you can deliver me from these afflictions, but help me learn what I'm supposed to learn as I go through it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, but the Lord delivers us from them all. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that tries your soul, as some men think strangeness. But I'm here to tell you, sometimes the trials and the tests uh, and so forth uh, can be turned into triumphs overnight. Prayer can remove afflictions if it's God's will. But remind you, prayer can also give us the grace that we need to endure life, to endure troubles, and to use them to accomplish the perfect will of God. God can transform our troubles into triumphs. But let me remind you something. He giveth grace, the Bible said in James 4, 6. He giveth grace. Paul prayed three times that the thorn in the flesh might be removed. But God said, my grace is sufficient, keep the thorn. 
Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane that what? That the cup that which he must drink from would be taken away, if it be the will of God. But Jesus drank of the cup. In the case of Paul, in the case of Jesus, God chose not to remove their suffering, but they endured the suffering. As a result, their trouble became their triumph. Sometimes in life, we just need to put a little more, tr- a little more ump in our try. That makes sense? Just put a little more ump in our try, and therefore we'll have triumph. Life's not easy, friends. Life is messy. Life is difficult. Life is painful. But life is a gift from God. And what we do with this thing called life, we can murmur, we can complain, or we can worship and we can glorify God. Nobody knows what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know how the rest of this day is going in. And there's some days I wake up and I feel like the ball. And some days I wake up and I feel like the bat. And there's some days I wake up, I feel like the bug. And there's some days I wake up, I feel like the windshield wiper. And there are those days where I wake up and I feel like the dog. And some days I feel like the hubcap. Tell me what I'm talking about. Not to be ugly. Life happens. Life happens. By the way, little commercial. I've just spent 10 weeks on, Will has spent 10 weeks on the book of James. But I got into the six-part series on James I want to start next month. <laughs> if I, I think about four, 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 fourth part, I think. Because I want to look at it in a little different angle. And I've been excited about this particular study. Anyway, that's just a little, little something going on here. James indicated that everybody does not go through troubles at the same time. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any among you merry? Let him sing. Charlie, you may have a good day. I may have a bad one. How come God loves you more than he loves me? It doesn't work that way. God balances life. There will be months that we will have suffering. But there will be years that we will have singing. There will be seasons where we'll be down and out. But there will be seasons where we are up and about. And the truth of the matter is, my friend... The nature of the mature Christian knows how to sing even in the midst of pain. We know how to sing even in the midst of suffering. We know how to sing in the midst of obstacles that come our way. Anybody can sing when the the sun shines. Anybody can sing when your body's full of health. Anybody can sing when all your problems are solved. Anybody can sing when the the light's bright. But Job said he gives a song in the night. And I believe old Paul and Silas knew something about that, don't you? Paul and Silas was carried into jail, and there they were, uh, and their feet in stocks and bonds. They'd been whipped, they'd been beaten, they had been humiliated, and there they are in stocks and bonds. That's not Wall Street stocks and bonds, friends. That's that torture. And their backs were bleeding, and they were Roman citizens. It was unfair to do to them what they did. And all of a sudden, at midnight, old Paul looked over and sighed and said, Silas, what you doing? He said, I'm hurting, Paul. How come God let us do this? How come this happened? We were in the will of God. Why? He said, don't look at it that way. It's a joy to suffer for Jesus. He said, what you been smoking, boy? 
He said, I said, it's a joy. Do you know what I used to be? You know, I was a blasphemer. I was a cursor. I was on my way to hell. But today, I'm a born-again child of God, and the stripes from my back are giving glory and honor and praise to my God. Hey, I feel something well up on the inside, so I... And all of a sudden, old Silas began to sing, or Paul began to sing praise unto God. Now, you know, when the praise goes up, the power comes down. The Bible lets me know that this earth is God's footstool. And as the praise went up, I believe God kind of got in the beat of that thing. Because the Bible said there was an earthquake, and notice if you will, it was a localized earthquake. It didn't go all over Philippi, but the jail began to rot before Elvis Presley ever sang about it. And the truth of the matter is, the jailhouse began to rot, and the doors of the prison swung open wide, and the stock came off, and the jailer said, hey, what's going on in there? You've escaped, I went to kill myself. And Paul said, put your sword up, we're all here. You see, people could care less about our experience in God but they're interested about God's experience in us our experience in God may be based upon circumstance but God's experience in us is based upon a heart that is fixed upon who he is hallelujah and the whole jailhouse heard and they got saved what am I saying Paul understood that God gives a song in the night. Friend, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what kind of pain you're enduring. I don't know what kind of rejection you've gone through. I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. If you'll get your eyes off the problem and put your eyes on the problem solver, if you get your mind off of the pain and put your heart and mind upon Jesus Christ and begin to praise him in spite of what you're going through, you may have a jailhouse rock in your life as well. Praying and singing were important elements in the early church, and they ought to be important elements in our life. I'm telling you something, friends. I'm so sick and tired of these 7-Eleven songs, seven words 11 times, that moves our feet before it moves our heart. I believe that we are to sing from our heart, motivated by the Holy Spirit. And I believe the words that we sing are to be biblically based and biblically sound because I believe that we will praise him and worship him and leave the smoke machines and the wide screens and the tight jeans away and let God have his way. It's a might sight what God will do in the hour in which we live. I'm supposed to be teaching. I wonder if songs are not biblical how acceptable are they to God? Just a thought. Then he says, pray for the sick, verses 14. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, the Lord shall raise him up, and if he committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I don't think that James is given a blanket formula for how people to be healed. I want to confess to you a fact. Of all the doctrines in God's word, divine healing is the easiest one to understand and the most difficult to appropriate. At least in American culture. I have prayed for people and they've been healed. I have prayed for people they have died. I have gone on 21-day fast, arduously seeking the face of God for healing in somebody's life, and they die. Yeah. 
I've gone to the emergency room after eating a hamburger and drinking a Coke and said a generic prayer and God heals them. I don't understand it. We don't bargain our way with God. But I'll tell you this much, God does heal. I've been healed by his power and you've been healed by his power. But if you want me to pray for you, it's a 50-50 chance. I'm just going to be honest. And it happens to the big shots on TV too, by the way, that way. Amen? One of the special characteristics of the case of healing that James is talking about, as I look at it in verse 15, the person in this context seems to me like he was sick because of sin. Let me say this to you. All sickness does not come because of our personal sin. Sickness comes in the world just like sin because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. If the sickness in your life is, is a result of your personal sin, then that would mean to me if you confess your sin and forsake it, then you should be healed. And that don't happen that way either. Right. But it would seem like in the case of this guy that they're referring to, it seemed like he did something in his own life, stepping up underneath the umbrella of God's protection that caused him to be the way that he was. For instance, it's a dumb illustration, but I pressure washed my mom and dad's house and did a few other chores while I was up there. It was cold. I mean, I'd killed hogs in warmer weather in the month of April. It was cold. 39 degrees. I, I waited to got about six and I was doing the pressure washing. But my wife kept coming out as the temperature kept going down and I was soaking wet. Come in before you get a cold. Come in before you get a cold. Not macho, man. I'm going to finish this job. Now, had I got a cold, it would have been because I didn't use wisdom. And there are times we get sick as Christians because we don't use wisdom. But in the case that we see here, it's almost like the Greek text says, if he has been constantly sinning, that parallels what Paul said in Corinthians 11.30. For this cause, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or have died. This explains why the elders of the assembly had to go to where that guy would call for the elders of the church. Apparently the guy was sick. He couldn't go to them. The elders were to come to him. And that's what happened, I think, in this context. The leaders would be in charge of the congregation. Secondly, the person confesses his sin in verse 16. The early church believed in and practiced church discipline. I think we still need to believe in and practice church discipline. We remind yourself there in 1 Corinthians 5, I think it was, there was a man that was sinning and they had to, he would not listen uh, to the pastor. He would not listen to the t- council of the board. So they took him away and said, you can no longer come to the church. They even prayed to turn his body over to the destruction of the devil, hoping that his body's suffering would bring him back to repentance, uh, that his soul and spirit might be born into the kingdom of God. James 5.16 basically says, Confess your sins therefore to one another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. Now the, the King James talks about the word false. The word false in the, in the authorized version here gives the impression the man's deeds were not too evil. They were simply false. But the Greek word here means sin. Blatant sin. Looking right in the face and spitting in the face of God's sin. That's what the person was doing. It wasn't just a fault. He flat out sinned against God and apparently knew better when he did it. Notice also, the person is healed by the prayer of faith. Whose faith? Apparently it was not the, prayer, the, faith, the faith that he had. 
I don't believe it's even in the anointing oil. Friend, there's no power in the oil. It was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The power of God came as a result of the elders praying to the God who could heal. God can use any means of contact. God can use oil. God can use a prayer cloth. God can use spittle upon a clay. Whatever he, he, he can use as a point of contact. But God can heal simply by his power and by the word of his command. So many times we have all these things that we want to put on and do thinking that God's going to honor that. He may or he may not. God honors faith. God does not honor the bottle of oil. There's no power in that oil. There's power in prayer. It's the power of prayer that gets the job done. God can heal with or without means in each case. It's God who does the healing. Now, the Bible says the prayer of faith that heals the sick. What's that? What's the prayer of faith? John said, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we've desired of him. The prayer of faith is when we pray, when we know what the will of God is. How do we know the will of God? as we read and study and properly discern the Word of God. The will of God and the Word of God are one and the same. That's why we understand the Word. We read the Word to be wise. We believe the Word to be safe. We practice the teachings of God's Word to be holy. And God gives us His will. A lady came one time and said, Pastor, I've been praying and fasting for a long time to see if it's God's will for me to tithe. I think all you have to do is read the Word of God. Amen. It tells you. There's a lot of prayers already answered if we'll simply read the Word of God. Good. Years ago, a young person came and said, Now, Pastor, I know I'm a Christian, but Harry Hormone over here is not, and I feel like I need to, to, to date him and win him to Christ. I'm going to pray about it. You waste your time. The Bible already told us about that. Don't be unequally yoked together. But I'm strong. I can, I can save them. Nine times out of the ten, they're going to drag you down rather than you build them up. Stay in God's Word, church. We've got to know the Word of God and believe the Word of God and practice the Word of God and live what the Word of God tells us to do. Now, keep in mind that it was not the individual that was praying in this context. It was the elders of the church. It reminds me a lot about the man where Jesus was praying and they brought this guy on a stretcher bed and walked up on the roof and removed the roof and they lowered the man down. And Jesus didn't say, look at the faith of the man on the stretcher. He basically said, look at the faith of the man that's holding the ropes and letting him down. There have been times in my life I've been too depressed to pray for myself. There have been times in my life I've been too sick to pray for myself. And I thank God for the prayers of the people of God. I thank God that we can call for the elders of the church. And that if we have sinned, we can confess. And God said, I will forgive. And and he will bring healing to the people. Let me hurry tonight. There are some practical lessons from this section that I don't want to overlook before we leave it tonight. Here's one thing. Disobedience to God can lead us to all kinds of problems. I said disobedience to God can lead us to all kinds of problems. That was David's experience as he tried to hide his sin. 
Look at it in Psalm 32. Secondly, sin affects the whole church. We think, well, I just sinned and nobody... Well, let me tell you something. Sometimes the weakest link can bring damage to the whole chain. Achan, remember that in the Old Testament? Told me the day I was going to preach a sermon on rheumatism and use Achan from a text. <laughs> Achan, he, he disobeyed God. Remember in Joshua? He disobeyed the Lord. He took some of the spoils and he hid them, he buried them. And nobody knew it but he and his family. But it brought harm to the entire nation of Israel. You see, one little sin can throw a monkey wrench into the cogs everything that God is trying to do in the church. That's why it's important, people, that we live at the foot of the cross. And that's why it's important, brothers and sisters, that we do not practice sin. That's important, brothers and sisters, that we don't have these secret places that we go to in our mind and these dark places of our heart. That's why it's important that we live clean before the living God. I want to see revival at New Life Assembly. I want to see the power of God move at New Life Assembly. I want to see people saved and healed and delivered. Why? Because God wants a place where His Spirit can flow. But if we're hiding sins, oh, it's not going to hurt nobody. Yes, it is. It's hurting what God desires to do. Notice, if you will, the Bible says the man had to confess his sins to the church because he had sinned against the church. Notice, thirdly, there was healing, physical and spiritual, where sin is dealt with. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsaketh them shall find mercy. James said, make it a habit uh, to confess your sins one to another. Do not hide sin or delay confession. Now, the confession that James wrote about here is to be done between the brethren. He was, not he was not suggesting that we go confess our sin to the pastor. He was not suggesting that we go confess our sins to the priest. As a matter of fact, he was not saying that we're to go confess our sins before the entire church. The confession of sin only has to be as public as the knowledge of that sin. Sometimes if you go and you hang your dirty laundry before everybody to see and everybody don't know anything about it, sometimes the confession of that outward sin like that can do more harm than the original sin itself. So sins only have to be publicly known, publicly confessed as they're publicly known. Does that make sense? I thank God he doesn't air all of our wrongdoings before people. We must never confess sins beyond the circle of the sin's influence. Is it wrong for Christians to go hang dirty wash in public? Yes. Because it might do more harm than the original sin itself. Look at verses 17, 18. I'm not going to read it tonight, but again, it's a prayer for the nations. James cited Elijah as an example of a righteous man whose power or whose prayers release power. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. James 5.16. Now the background of this incident took place in 1 Kings 18 and 19. We know that wicked King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel had led the nation of Israel away from the living God and led them in to Baal worship itself. As a result of that, God brought judgment upon them by turning off the rainwater for three and one half years, and they were unable to produce crops. Not able to produce crops whatsoever. 
Then it was Elijah who went to the top of Mount Carmel. And while on the top of Mount Carmel, he came to hand-to-hand camp combat uh, with the prophets of Baal. You remember the story. The Bible said that uh, Elijah said, okay, you all make an altar and you do the sacrifice. You call upon the God of Baal. If God answers by fire, then we'll worship your God. And, but if he don't, I'm going to call upon the name of Yahweh and show you who he really is. So they built the altar, they put the wood on it, they put the sacrifice on it, and they called out to Baal. They cried, they boohooed, they cut themselves, they did all types of things uh, to call upon Baal, and Baal did nothing. And Elijah began to taunt them. I don't know about you, that man had faith. Yeah. It's one thing to brag in the church among Christians, but you're around a bunch of sinners who are demons around them and taunting their God. Where's he at on vacation? Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. Wake him up. Nothing happened. So Elijah, at the time of Israel's sacrifice, he built the altar. He put the wood upon it. And then he dug a trench all the way around that altar. And in the midst of a drought where water was a precious commodity, they poured barrel on top of barrel on top of barrel of water upon that sacrifice. And it filled up of the pit around it. Why? <coughs> because in those days there were a lot of trickery, a lot of shenanigans. It had been known in that history and that culture at that time that there would be some people that underneath, they would tunnel underneath an altar and they would build a fire underneath that altar and then at the precise time they would rub two, two sticks together, whatever, and make a fire to come up. And Elijah is going to say, there is no shenanigan going on here. There's nobody under that altar the water would douse anything that might even be there if you had a suspicion of it. And we know that when he prayed a little 63-word prayer, the power of God fell, the fire of God fell, and the Bible said it came from heaven. You know why? Because it licked up the sacrifice, it licked up the water on the wood, it licked up the wood, then it licked up the water on the altar. It didn't come up, the fire came down. And then in the midst of a drought, Elijah now gives the word, it's going to rain. They needed water. God had proved he was Yahweh. The people would have turned back to God now. Now Elijah prays that it might rain. Now here's what we think. Oh, Elijah was a powerful man. The Bible said he's a man just like you and me. And a man just like you and a man just like me, he goes out and he prays to God. And he don't pray one time. He prayed several times. He prayed earnestly. I remind you, it was Paul prayed three times for the thorn to be removed. It was Jesus prayed three times for the cup to be removed. And here this man prayed earnestly. A man just like you and just like me. Not a perfect man. In fact, after he had the victory at Mount Carmel, he was afraid for his life. He was terrified of Queen Jezebel. He ran for his life. He was fatigued. He was in fear. He panicked. A man just like you and me who came off a mountain of victory was now entering into his own personal defeat. But it was there that God visited with him. We'll talk about that later on. Elijah prayed in faith for God said he would send rain. Prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but it's getting God's will accomplished upon this earth. Elijah was only believing in his praying but he was persistent. The Bible said in James 5, 17, he prayed and he prayed again. He continued to pray and pray and pray until he saw something. He sent the servant upon the mountain several times. Do you see anything? No. Do you see anything? No. Again, do you see anything? No. I see a cloud the size of a man's head. Glory to God. Get your umbrellas out. Here it comes. 
Most of us would say, well, there's a cloud that don't mean nothing. Better go pray some more. We better have faith in our God. Brothers and sisters, there's a difference between praying vain repetition and praying prayers of faith. Jesus prayed three times in the garden, as we said, and Paul prayed three times for the thorn of flesh. Elijah was determined. He was concerned in his praying. He prayed earnestly. The Greek translation says, and he prayed in prayer. Wow. He prayed in prayer. Many people do not pray in their prayers. We just lazily say words and phrases that come our mind. Years ago, I read a story about a man that was in a prayer meeting. He just, he was praying around the world for this, that, and the other. And finally, one guy getting discouraged said, would you ask him for something? <laughs> That's what prayer is. We need to ask God for something. And I said it many times. Let me say it again. The size of our prayers determine the size of our God. The size of our prayers tell us how big our God really is. Let the Lord challenge us. He said, ask for the nations. Ask for the nations. Let's pray prayers. Let's pray in prayer. And you've heard me say it many years. Through, I've been to your pastor. Let's pray for prayer. Let's pray for revival. Not something that comes readily from our mind, but something that's birthed in our heart by the Holy Spirit of God that will touch the throne of the living God. Prayer powers the greatest power in the world. James 5.16 in the Phillips translation says, Tremendous power is made available through a good man's earnest prayer. History shows us that we've gone from manpower to horsepower to TNT power to atomic power to nuclear power. I wonder what kind of power there is in prayer that we've yet to discover. I'm wondering... What kind of power is there in prayer that we're yet to discover? Greater than atomic power is a prayer power. Elijah prayed for his nation. God answered. We need to pray for our nation today. Dear Lord, give us intercessors for America. Yeah. Let me tell you something. People say America's Christians not prayed enough. I believe that's hogwash. I believe we've prayed. I believe God's heard us. I really do. I don't believe it's been a lack on God's ability to do. I don't think it's been a lack on me and God's children to pray. I'll tell you one thing. I believe within the last day and all hell has vomited out every demon that it can to rob, to kill, and to destroy. And the Bible let me know that when uh, Daniel prayed, he had to wait for 21 days, wasn't it, for the power of God to come down. He said, I heard the prayer the first day, but had to go through all the opposition of darkness. I think, friends, we better get our rebuker out and start rebuking demons. Rebuking powers of darkness. And I still believe if we will have laser focus upon our living God in praise and worship. Amen. I believe that laser focus will spread open the heaven. If you visualize that, spread open heaven where the power and the presence of God can come upon us. Let us pray for our leaders of our nation. Both in our nation, in our state, and even here in our little town of Lakeland. And finally... Verses 19 and 20, pray for the straying. I thought this was a strange way to end the epistle of James. Pray for the straying, the people that are walking away. Strange. 
why James did not specifically say pray for these people. If he talked about praying in affliction, if he talked about praying during times of suffering, if he talked about praying during times of sickness, if he talked about praying during times of these temptations, surely he would want us to pray for the prodigals that are wandering away. I think it's there just by inference itself. It deals with our ministry to a fellow believer who strays from the truth and gets into sin. The verb err means to wonder and suggest a gradual moving away from the will of God. Friends, Christians are backsliding every day in America, churches. There are some people say you never lose your way with God, and they do. We do not lose our salvation overnight. It's a gradual walking away from God's Word, a gradual walking away from prayer, a gradual walking away from discipleship, a gradually walking away from the church. And like Samson of old, we're getting a haircut in the devil's barbershop. What did Samson do? He played with Delilah. He played with Delilah. A little here, a little there. Flirt here, flirt there. And finally she found the source of his strength. Not a razor has touched my head. I have the Nazarite veil. And quickly she tied him up again. What a nut. Women always got that boy in trouble. And he said, the Philistines are upon you. I'll shake myself as before. Not knowing the power of God had left him. And that's where the church is today. By the way, his power was not in his hair. The power was in the Nazarite vow. But he lost it. The book of Hebrews talks about how we need to guard it lest it slip from us. My pastor had a beautiful wedding ring that his wife bought him many years ago. He's out on the farm working one day and he took his glove off to throw it. And when he went home to take a shower that evening, he looked and noticed that the ring was gone. He didn't watch it close enough. When he took the glove off, it came off with the glove. When he flung it, he don't know where the ring's at. To this day, he's never found it. If we don't guard it and watch it and mature it and handle it, friends, this gift of salvation, we can lose it. I don't believe that, preacher. Then where are some of the people who was this time last year sitting here? Where are they at tonight? Where are they at tonight? I've known people backslide on God. I've known people walk away from the Lord. I've known people that's been using the gifts of the Spirit that's walked away from God to the big realms of this world. And many times they are deceived and many times their eyes are wide open. Sometimes their brother's overtaken the fault, as Paul said in Galatians 6.1. But usually the sin is a result of a slow, gradual, spiritual decline. And such a condition is very dangerous. You know why? You can't rationalize with some of these people. You can't talk to some of these people. They get angry. They become bitter. They become callous. They become hardened. And that's why it's important that we pray that God would soften a hard, cold, calloused heart. And friend, there is nothing more miserable in this world than a man or a woman who has tasted the beautiful things of God and then turned their back on it. Because they'll never feel comfortable in the world and they'll never feel comfortable in the church until they come back home to be with the Lord. There's a lot I could say for this tonight, but I want to close. The outcome of this wandering in sin is possible death. I'm going to tell you, friends, it is not sin that sends a person to hell. It's not accepting Jesus Christ. 
There's not a one in this room that doesn't have sin in their life. We were born into sin. And the only way we get out of sin is the day we die or get a glorified body. The Bible tells us in the book of John, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar. But if you practice sin, you are the devil. How do you, how you do that? Because it's impossible for this old Adamic nature inside of me not to want to sin. But it's impossible for Jesus inside of me to sin. And there's a constant battle going on on the inside. That to which I feed will grow, that which I starve will die. It's like two natures on the inside. And the only way old Adam's going to get out of us is the day we die or the day we get a resurrected, glorified body. But until then, those two natures, old Adam's in there, the old man, and Jesus Christ, the new man. And what you feed grows, and what you starve dies. And too many times we feed old Adam. And too many times we have propensity to go toward the things that satisfies the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. But we're not here to condemn anybody that's backslid. But by the grace of God, we all could be there. I'm going to tell you something, church. Look around America. Nowhere does it say in the Bible we have to have church on Sunday night. Nowhere does it say in the Bible we have to have church on Wednesday night. As a matter of fact, the early church, they didn't have buildings, per se. They used the synagogue. They met in houses. It has become tradition in America through the years that we meet on Wednesday night for Bible study, for prayer. We need that. Sunday morning was a time that we got together and worshiped the Lord. And Sunday night used to be the evangelistic service. I remember my home church, people stood in line to give their heart to Jesus on a Sunday night. But we can't get Christians back on a Sunday night, let alone the unsaved. Now again, there's not anything spiritual about Sunday night. Not anything that says you've got to have Sunday night. What I'm saying is, how come and what's happened to us in American Christians to where we have no desire to be in the house of God? I'm just asking. Again, there's nothing biblical about it. But I still believe that we need to gather together of like precious faith to edify each other, to love on each other, and to love our Lord together, and to make an atmosphere created whereby He may come and move among us. Maybe I, maybe I, don't, I like to eat more than once a week. I don't know about you. And I'm going to tell you something else. For a good meal, I'd drive a fur piece for it too. May we constantly gather together and create an atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to move every time we show up. I close with this illustration that just pops in my mind right now. There was a man that a pastor, a pastor had this church at he dearly loved and there was one man that absent himself this was pre-COVID days but he absented himself from the house of God for quite some time so the pastor went to visit him and the man had a burr in his saddle so to speak and he said I'm not going back to church I don't need church I can serve God all by myself right here I don't need to go to church and the pastor said well the Bible said in the latter days don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together the manner some will be we need each other I don't need nobody I am here in my house and me and God got our own thing going the pastor could not persuade him at all. Fire was burning in the fireplace, three or four logs just ablaze. So finally the pastor goes down, picks up the tongs, takes off one log, 
and sets it over to the side all by itself. These other three logs were burning. They just sat there and watched the fire. And after about a half hour or so, that one log by itself begins to dwindle. The other three were burning brightly. It begins to dwindle, nothing but smoke. And finally, the old man looked at him and said, Preacher, I'll see you in church Sunday. <laughs> May God help us to pray for those that want to follow.